Section 33 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 8, Spheres of Action, Chapter 1, Jews, Part 5. It is not difficult to apprehend the impulses which led to a wholesale emigration to Spain of those who felt themselves aliens in the land of their birth. Under Spanish rule the condition of Portugal was deplorable, as described in 1595 by the Venetian envoy Francesco Vendromini. Lisbon, which had been a rich and populous city, was almost uninhabited. It formerly owned 700 ships, but 500 had been captured by the enemy, mostly by the English, and but 200 remained. All this was not, he says, displeasing to the king, who desired to keep them impoverished, because they were unwilling subjects. Thus the rewards of commercial enterprise were more promising in Spain, and the emigrant might hope that, in the absence of knowledge of his antecedents, the danger of persecution would be less. The immigration thus was large, and before long its effects began to show themselves in the records of the Spanish Inquisition. Convictions for Judaism, which had become comparatively few, increased rapidly and, where the nativity of the delinquents happens to be specified, the term Portuguese occurs with ominous frequency. In 1593, Toledo had seven Portuguese on trial, but, as there was but a single witness and they did not confess under torture, their cases were suspended. The next year, the same tribunal held an auto in which appeared five Portuguese in person and nine effigies were burnt of others, either fugitive or dead. In 1595, at Seville, there was an auto in which were punished 89 Judaizers, besides four burnt in effigy, and soon afterwards, in Quintanar del Rey, Cuenza, there were 30 discovered, of whom the obstinate ones were burnt and the rest were reconciled. The Portuguese new Christians, both at home and in Spain, were growing restive under increasing pressure. They were wealthy and could afford to pay for a respite in the shape of a general pardon for past offenses, including cases on trial. In 1602, negotiations were opened with Philippe III for a papal brief to that effect. Portuguese orthodoxy took the alarm, and the archbishops of Lisbon, Braga, and Evora hastened to Valladolid, where the court lay to present remonstrances. Spanish piety, to which such transactions were a novelty, was no less exercised, and direful predictions were made as to the evils that it would bring upon the land. Philippe and his favorite Lerma, however, were desperately in need of cash, and all scruples were overcome by the dazzling bribe of 1,800,600,000 ducats to the king, besides 50,000 cruzados to Lerma, 40,000 to Joao de Borja, and 30,000 to Pedro Alvarez Pereira, members of the Suprema Council, and 30,000 to its secretary, Fernão de Matos. The papal brief was issued August 23, 1604, but, at the last moment, the bargain came near being wrecked by the demand of the new Christians to have eight years in which to raise the sum. A threat, however, to suspend the execution of the brief sufficed to bring them to reason. It empowered the Portuguese inquisitor-general, the archbishop of Lisbon, and the papal collector, or any two of them or their deputies, to reconcile all Portuguese new Christians, wherever they might be settled, with the injunction only of spiritual penances. 
It included all who were on trial or who had been condemned provided their sentences had not been published. It released all confiscations that had not been covered into the fisc, and it gave to the Portuguese in Europe a year and to those outside of Europe two years in which to come forward and avail themselves of its provisions. The reconciliation thus obtained was not to entail relaxation in case of relapse, and all inquisitors were forbidden to interfere. The brief was received in Valladolid about October 1st, but was not published in Lisbon until January 16, 1605. A royal cedula, however, was obtained, prohibiting the publication or execution of any sentences until this brief should take effect, thus including in its benefits all Portuguese who were in the hands of the Spanish tribunals, as well as in those of Portugal. The effect of this was dramatically exhibited without delay. On October 20th, the Seville tribunal announced a great auto de fe for November 7th. The stagings erected were on an unusually large scale. On the evening of the 6th took place the procession of the Green Cross, in which more than 500 familiars participated. The people flocked in from the country in numbers beyond the capacity of the city to accommodate them. At night, the confessors were introduced in the cells of those condemned to relaxation and, after completing all the preparations for the solemnity, the junior inquisitor, Fernando de Acevedo, sought his bed about eleven o'clock. Suddenly, a courier arrived, armed with an order to admit him to the inquisitors, wherever they might be, whether in their houses or their beds, in consulta de fe or on the staging at the auto. He had left Valladolid at midnight on the 3rd and, at breakneck speed, had made the distance to Seville in 72 hours, getting through the closed gates of the towns on the road and arriving in time to serve on the inquisitors a royal cedula forbidding the celebration of the auto. Some there were who held that a royal decree was not to be obeyed unless rubricated by the Suprema, but this was an opinion not as yet established, and, after a brief consultation, measures were hurriedly taken to suspend the celebration, to the blank astonishment of all Seville. Surmises were various. Some explained it by the recent treaty with England, under which English men in Spain were not to be troubled on account of heresy. Others attributed it to the planets. Others thought that among the condemned there was someone of lofty station and influence, whose friends had been able to save him, but the suggestion which found the widest acceptance was that it was due to the Portuguese new Christians, numerous and wealthy, who had offered large sums, estimated at 800,000 ducats, to stave it off, and this was supported by the fact that the midnight horsemen, before going to the Inquisition, had stopped at the house of Etor Otanes, a wealthy Portuguese merchant, who had given him fifty ducats for his good news under this perdon general the three tribunals in portugal liberated four hundred and ten prisoners simultaneously on january sixteenth sixteen o five and there can be no doubt that the great body of portuguese judaizers in spain obtained valid absolution for all past sins during the twelve month of its duration although the inquisition threw what obstacles it could in their way in 1605, at Toledo, Antonio Fernandez Paredes, a Portuguese on trial with three witnesses against him, was obliged to insist on his right under the pardon, and to argue that his wife, Isabel Diaz, had been released at Coimbra in virtue of it, until the tribunal referred the matter to the Suprema, which ordered his discharge, although subsequently, during the same year, six other Portuguese were tried and sentenced without any reference being made to it. 
Still, the hands of the Inquisition were tied, and it lent its energies to detecting the Portuguese in new delinquencies. It sent out the brief to the tribunals, April 15th, and, on April 20th, 1606, it called their attention to the fact that the year had expired on January 16th, wherefore they were immediately to examine their records as to the Portuguese who had been discharged in virtue of the brief, and to proceed against all who had not taken advantage of it, as well as against those who had been guilty of heresy after its expiration. Notwithstanding this, there must have been for some years a marked interruption of persecution. A writer remarks in 1611 that in Seville the castle of Triana was used as a penitential prison, for there was no one on trial. The Judaizers having all been pardoned, the Moriscos expelled, and the Protestants suppressed. This episode, however, could have no permanent influence, and its chief interest lies in its manifestation of the numbers and wealth of the new class of offenders coming forward to replace the expelled Moriscos in furnishing material for autos de fe and in stimulating activity with the prospect of fines and confiscations. After this, we hear little of the old Spanish conversos. Nearly all Judaizers are Portuguese, and all Portuguese are presumably Judaizers, suspects who existed only on sufferance. In 1625, at Salamanca, the corregidor, in his nightly round, entered a tavern to arrest a priest who had committed murder. He had words with a party of Portuguese, and forthwith arrested them all, charging them with being fugitives from the Portuguese Inquisition. He reported this to the Suprema, which communicated with the Tribunal of Coimbra, and they were all sent to it for trial. When, in 1633, an effort was made to remove the disabilities under which the new Christians labored, the licenciate Juan Adán de la Parra, in an argument against it, urged as his principal reason the obstinacy of the Portuguese neophytes. Even the advocates of the measure admitted that it would be inapplicable to them, and Parra pointed out the impossibility of distinguishing between them and the Castilians. Some efforts were made to check this influx and to prevent transit through Spain to France and Holland, where the refugees were of material assistance to the national enemies. In 1567, during the minority of Dom Sebastian, the old laws were revived forbidding new Christians to leave the kingdom, or to seek the colonies, or to sell real estate without a special royal license. Sebastian subsequently repealed this, but it was renewed by Philippe II in 1587, and remained at least nominally in force, though difficult of execution. Partial relief was obtained in 1601, when they paid Philippe III 200,000 ducats for an irrevocable free permission to go to the colonies of both crowns and to sell landed property but, with the faithlessness customary in dealing with the prescribed race, this irrevocable permission was withdrawn in 1610 and, in 1611 and 1612, the Suprema forwarded to the Viceroy of Goa a royal provision ordering him to expel all of Jewish blood, to which he refused obedience, saying that all commerce was in their hands and the colonies would be ruined by their expulsion. Another decree of Philip III, April 16, 1619, called the attention of the Inquisitor-General to the evils resulting from the multitudes of Portuguese passing, with their families and property, to France. All who could not show a license under the Portuguese crown to leave that kingdom were to be seized and their property sequestrated without further orders, in accordance with which the Suprema promptly issued the necessary instructions to its commissioners in the seaports and frontier towns. 
This doubtless led to increased restrictions in Portugal on emigration, and to it we may probably attribute an eloquent memorial, without date, from the Portuguese New Christians, asking for the removal of all limitations. Gentlemen of the noblest houses, they stated, had intermarried with them, both in Portugal and the colonies, and they had lavished their substance in the good work of founding churches, embellishing confrarias, endowing chapels, and liberal almsgiving. Free permission to enter Spain would work no harm to religion, for the Inquisition was everywhere, and the benefit arising from unrestricted intercourse was manifested in the revenues derived from the frontier towns, which were formerly farmed out for thirteen millions of maraveres, irregularly paid, and now were farmed for thirty-six million, attributable to the spices, perfumes, porcelains, stuffs, and other wares brought in by them. It was the same with the Spanish manufacturers exported through Biscay, the wools and cloths of Segovia, the silks and other goods. The only objection to free intercourse was that they might take advantage of it to seek other prohibited lands, and this was sufficiently answered elsewhere, in addition to the fact that Portugal had so many ports that emigration could not be prevented, as two hours sufficed to reach the sea and embark, while land travel was slow and expensive, and could be stopped at the frontier towns. The new Christians had greatly enriched the kingdom and the colonies by their labors. In Brazil, where they could hold real estate, nearly all the sugar plantations were in their hands, and these they were constantly increasing, to the great profit of the colony and of the revenue. As by law they were excluded from all offices and dignities, commerce was their only resource. Possibly these representations may have been convincing, for the prohibition was withdrawn, to be subsequently renewed as we shall see. If they desired to escape from Portugal, Portugal was quite as anxious to get rid of them, by extermination or otherwise. The pious intensity of hatred towards them finds expression in 1621 in a ferocious work by Vicente de Costa Matos, of which the declared object was to drive them from the land. All the old stories of their malice to Christians were raked together and set forth as uncontradicted truths. They were enemies of mankind, wandering like gypsies through the world and living on the sweat of others. They had possessed themselves of all trade, farming the lands of individuals and the royal patrimony, with no capital but industry and lack of conscience. They live only for the perdition of the world. Of old, God punished those who ill-treated them, but now he punishes those who endure them. The decline of the Spanish kingdoms was the punishment sent by God for tolerating them. They were all idolaters and sodomites, and wherever they went, they infected the land with their abominations, and were constantly seeking to convert Christians to their foul belief. Luther commenced by Judaizing. All heretics were either Jews or descendants of Judaizers, as was seen in England, Germany, and other parts where they flourished. Calvin called himself the father of Jews, like many other deniers of the Trinity, and Bousser, in his will, declared that Christ was not the Savior promised. Their perverse obstinacy was sufficiently proved by the numbers who were every day burnt, and the still greater numbers who escaped by penance after conviction. This crazy ebullition of ignorant hate accorded so well with the prejudices of the time that a second edition was called for in 1633. In 1629, it was translated into Castilian by Fray Diego Galvalan Vera, and this was reprinted in 1680. The hatred, indeed, was quenchless which was not satisfied with what the Inquisition was doing. In 1623, we chance to hear of the Tribunal of Evora arresting a hundred new Christians of the little town of Montemar al Novo. 
The autos de fe were frequently conducted on a scale unknown in contemporary Castile. The tribunal of Coimbra held once, August 16, 1626, with 247 penitents and relaxados, another on May 16, 1629, with 218, and another on August 17, 1631, with 247. The statistics between 1620 and 1640 are not complete, for there were ten autos of which the details have not been preserved, but, even without these, the fearful aggregate is 230 relaxed in person, 161 in effigy, and 4,995 penanced, and this is in addition to several hundred prisoners discharged under two pardons granted in 1627 and 1630, which no doubt were heavily paid for. Besides these pardons, an Edict of Grace was published in 1622, but, as we have seen, such mercies were burdened with intolerable conditions, and only sixteen persons came forward under it, twelve in Lisbon and four in Evora, and all these had already been testified against. In 1630, the royal confessor Sotomayor reported that, in interviewing the deputies of the new Christians, he found that they wanted no more Edicts of Grace. The last one, they said, had done them no good but much harm, as it brought infinite denunciations against them and filled the prisons. There is very likely exaggeration, but nothing more than exaggeration, in the assertion of Lois de Milo that, in this period, the activity of the Inquisition had virtually depopulated the cities of Coimbra, Oporto, Braga, Lamego, Braganza, Evora, Beja, and part of Lisbon, and the towns of Santarem, Tomar, Trancosa, Avero, Guimarães, Vinay, Villaflor, Fondan, Montemarovello, and Onovo, and many other places, while the prisons of the three tribunals were always full and the autos so frequent that each tribunal celebrated one almost every year. One in Coimbra occupied two days, there being more than a hundred each day, and among them professors, canons, priests, curas, with cure of souls, vicars general, frailes, nuns, knights, including some of the military orders of kin with the highest of the land, and there was even a discalced Franciscan so pertinacious that he was burnt alive. Notwithstanding these superhuman exertions, the inquisitors complained that their labors were unavailing. Judaism was steadily increasing. The misfortunes of the land were attributable to the idolatry of this evil rabble, and they clamored for more drastic measures. The Supreme Council, January 17, 1619, addressed to Philippe III a consulta urging that prompt action was necessary in view of the contamination, and of the infinite sacrileges committed, to the scandal of the faithful. The king, it said, did not want vassals only, but good vassals, and it therefore suggested that, when a penitent was condemned to confiscation, he should also be banished. He would thus be stripped of everything, and would not take wealth to enrich the enemy as now was the case. It also said that a general visitation was on foot, which had already produced much result. Presumably there were many in Madrid who should be investigated, and the king was asked to order a visitation there. One member of the council, Mendo de la Mota, went even further, and wanted banishment for all required to abjure for vehement suspicion. Philippe responded to this with chilling indifference. If those who abjured for suspicion were banished, they would take their money with them. It was a doubtful measure, and he wished the council to consider it further. As regarded the Portuguese and Castile, if a list was furnished, with notes as to grounds for suspicion, he would have them investigated. The list was duly supplied, but the investigation was not made. 
The effort was resumed the next year. On April 30, 1620, the tribunals of Lisbon and Evora sent to Philippe relations of the autos held by them on the previous September 29th, so that he might see the large numbers punished on those occasions, and recognize the necessity of more active measures of repression. Among them were three canons of Coimbra, three frails, and several lawyers. Six canons of Coimbra, all new Christians, had been arrested. They were all appointees of the Pope, and the king was prayed to ask him to close the door on all applicants for benefices of that race, also to order that none should be admitted to the church, either as seculars or regulars, and none to public office, which indicates how little the prohibitory laws were respected. End of section 33 Recording by Robert Sherman, Jr., Washington, D.C., www.nyckidd.com.